Turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians, the fourth chapter. And we're, we're finished. I don't know where to put this little cup of water. I think if I lean it, it'll spill. It'll spill in my Bible. Um, you know what? I'm just going to. There we go. Turn in your Bible to Colossians chapter 4. And um, we're finishing the book of Colossians. We've been in Colossians since, I don't know, October. Our Christmas Advent season took us out of that. And we came back to it. Like I said, next week we're going to be starting the book of Luke. And unlike Colossians, the book of Luke... um, accounts for a huge portion of the New Testament. In fact, Luke wrote Luke and Acts. And so uh, we may be in Luke for a good while, but I want to assure you that um, Luke really covers everything. There's so many topics um, related to what it means to be a Christian, the Christian life, what the gospel is in Luke, that that, uh, you're really going to enjoy it. Um, So uh, Colossians chapter 4. And I'm not going to be preaching on all of it. I'm just I'm going to read the verse I'm preaching on and Paul's um, uh, kind of uh, closing remarks to the Colossians. Um, so beginning in verse 2, it reads, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving, and at the same time also pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word. To declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men uh, of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always, struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and to the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. 
Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, now as we come on the end of Paul's epistle to the church in Colossae, we pray, O God, that you would um, help us in our hearts to remember the words we've already spoken, the word preached. And even now, O God, as we explore um, this last final section on the Christian's mission to the world, help us to hear. Father, we pray for the unction and the anointing of your Holy Spirit to uh, illuminate our hearts and that we would be transformed by the Word of God and leave differently than we came in here. Um, We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. When I cut my teeth in ministry, if I can put it that way, I was in my late teens. I ran the streets for a while in Los Angeles and um, kind of, you know, the Lord delivered me from that life and I hit the ground running in the church and I was filled with zeal. And I, I was probably, besides the pastor, the most zealous person in the congregation. Now that's not saying a whole lot because the congregation was tiny. But um, I was pretty zealous and I was excited about the word of God. I was, I was reading the Bible every day. I had a giant print Bible, and I just couldn't get enough of it. I mean, I would wake up in the morning, I would read it, and I would go to bed reading it. And I had grown up in church, but for some reason, the Bible was just, it was new to me. And so I was reading all these stories, and I was reading all this, uh, all this scripture, and I just had to share it. And so we had this thing where on Saturday morning, anyone who wanted to go out, you know, street preaching or evangelizing would show up. Well, Saturday after Saturday, it was just me. I'd show up, and I'd be the only one there, and I said, well, I don't care if there's no one with me. I'm going to go out, and I'm going to preach. And, uh, and I would just go in the neighborhoods around the church. The church was kind of in a pretty rough area, so there were all these um, uh, you know, low-income apartments, and I would just go through these, into these apartment buildings alone Saturday morning at 9 or 10 a.m., and I would just knock on doors. I mean, you talk about a cold cell. I mean, um, I would just knock on doors, and, you know, um, people would open the door, and you know, there'd be a little chain, and they'd say, you know, what do you want, you know? And I would just share the gospel, and um, I didn't get a, I wasn't incredibly successful, but in, in my mind and heart, I was just preaching the word of God. If I ran into someone on the street, I would stop them dead in their tracks, and I would tell them about Jesus. And a couple times, I almost got punched because I walked up to people on the payphone. That's back when there were payphones all over the place. And uh, I'd interrupt conversations people were having, you know, to talk about Jesus. And um, it wasn't very sophisticated, um, but uh, I was just filled with zeal. And it was kind of like hit-and-run evangelism. I was going to tell you about Jesus and, you know, now that I've given you the gospel message, you know, it's between you and God, and I would go on about my way. And if someone was rude or someone was offended or someone was, you know, was mean to me, I just thought, oh, yeah, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm taking one for Christ, you know, for the church, you know, and I'm being persecuted, and I just felt special, you know. And, uh, but that was, that was all I knew. I was filled with the word of God and wanted to spread it, and I wanted to share it, and I wanted to see the word of God grow. I wanted to see the church grow. Besides Paul's desire for the Colossians uh, to grow in their faith and live for Christ, his hope 
above all things is that the word of God grows. He wanted to see the word of God grow in the world. Um, the entire letter of, uh, to the Colossians, Paul is writing from prison. You know, he's locked up for his faith. And his, his desire isn't to be released necessarily, but it's that the word of God would continue to spread. That it would grow in the world. And so there's these three things in this passage of scripture that, that he addresses to us. He says, devote yourselves in prayer. Right? We're talking about the Christian's mission, what our mission is. Right? It's not just to learn the Bible and to know the word of God. But he says, devote yourself in prayer. He says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, right, unbelievers, and let your speech always be full of grace. Uh, those are things I probably didn't understand very well at 18, 19, 20 years old when I was so zealous for the word of God. Devote yourselves in prayer, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, and let your speech always be f- filled with grace. So the first thing he does, what he does here is he provides this link between missions and prayer. Look at verse 2. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. You know, if you find that there are very few opportunities in your life um, to share the gospel, the first thing you should do is examine what you pray for. Paul was constantly praying for opportunities, and so were the apostles, to share the gospel. Now, it's just a quick recap from the book of Colossians. Paul prayed that the Colossians would grow in their knowledge of of Jesus with wisdom and understanding, right? You remember that? You know, we preached, uh, Paul prayed that they would be able to walk worthy of the Lord. In other words, that they'd be able to walk in a way that demonstrated obedience to the word of God and please God. And he gives them a lot of really good theology, right? He tells them that Jesus Christ is preeminent over all things in the world. He's the firstborn of creation. He's the firstborn from the dead. And there's all these good, you know, all this good uh, truth that Paul gives them. And now that they've been filled up with all this good teaching, Paul is saying, now let's focus outward. So here's all, you know, almost three full chapters of what it means to understand our new status, you know, as, as being born from the dead, right? Being delivered from the bondage of sin, right? Even the rules about what it means to live holy and how we should treat uh, the members of our own household. And now he's looking outside of the church. And he's saying, uh, pray, um, continue steadfastly in prayer, um, And the reason he wants us to pray is because prayer is a vital and incredible part of Christian witness. Prayer is the secret weapon of the Christian um, that pierces the heart of the lost. Right? Prayer conquers. It conquers uh, 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 trials. It it conquers, uh, it moves mountains. And prayer pierces the hearts of people. Prayer is powerful, and it's probably one of the most neglected things that we do or don't do. It's one of the most, uh, um, one of the most neglected duties of a Christian. Prayer alerts us, and it makes us sensitive to people around us and temptations. Jesus said, remember in Mark 
1438, he says, watch and pray that you don't enter into temptation. And remember in the beginning of Colossians, Paul says, uh, we have not ceased praying for you and asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom. So prayer is this vital, integral part of the Christian's life. Romans 12, 12 tells us, rejoice in hope, uh, endure in suffering, and persist in prayer. And the very idea that we have to persist in prayer, you know what it represents? That we can be fatigued. Prayer is actually, um, it, it can be difficult. Do you want to know why? It may be one of the most faithful things or faith-filled things we do. It takes a lot of faith to pray. It takes a lot of faith to pray because essentially we're talking into the air. We serve and worship an invisible God who does not audibly speak back to us. And so there's this faith and there's this kind of, you know, there's this... Uh, this confidence that we have to have every time we go to the Lord in prayer that not only does he hear us, but also that, that he, he, he knows what we need and he's able to answer prayer. And sometimes we get really discouraged because when we pray for things, it doesn't immediately happen. I mean, I remember this time in my life where I had gotten really disappointed. Now, looking back in retrospect, I realized I was asking for all of the wrong things. It took me years to recognize that. But, but at that time, I had become so discouraged that my prayers weren't being answered that I just had this, you know, this motto, you know, he who expects nothing will never be disappointed. So I just, I'm not going to, I'm just going to stop asking for, for things because it doesn't seem like God ever answers. Uh, in retrospect, I realized I wasn't praying for the right things. But what Paul does is he orients us here in this passage what to pray for. Uh, E.M. Bounds, which is, uh, uh, who's written extensively on prayer, just when you're at a service today, just Google E.M. Bounds, and you'll just find amazing things on prayer. He's written extensively, and this is what he says. The people who have done the most for God in this world have been early on their knees. He who fritters away early in the morning its opportunity and freshness in other pursuits than seeking God will make poor headway seeking him the rest of the day. If God is not first in our thoughts and efforts in the morning, he will be in the last place the remainder of the day. You know those days I'm talking about where you just, you know, you feel off. Things aren't, you know, things aren't going your way and you realize, you know, I didn't pray today. When you pray, it's almost like it doesn't matter what happens because God is with us. Now, God is with us even when we don't pray, but when we pray, we feel God in a, in a tangible and palpable way that doesn't happen uh, when we're not praying. He goes on to say, prayer is not simply an act of presenting one's personal wishes and desires to God. It's how we participate in God's redemptive plan in history. Remember in Acts 4, when Peter and John are in prison for preaching in Jesus' name, they're beaten and they're thrown in, in jail, and then they're released, and they're told, stop preaching in Jesus' name. Um, well, when they prayed in that situation, they didn't pray for God's deliverance. Lord, deliver us from this persecution and prison. They prayed, the Bible says in Acts 4, that they would be able to continue to preach the word boldly. 
And you know what these, you know what these admonitions do? They smack us right in the face because most of us are not concerned with that. Most of our prayers are not concerned with how can we more faithfully preach the word. We're concerned with all these other things in our lives. Now, it's not wrong to pray for other things in our lives, but at the very least, part of our daily prayer routine ought to include the proclamation of the word of God, the proclamation of the gospel of Christ. This is central to what it means to commune with God and be a believer. That praying for the word of God to grow, that God would use us to share the gospel, it's, it's hugely important. So P- Paul's asking the Colossians to pray for the spread of the gospel. And if you've ever wondered, how can I participate in the church's mission? This is how, through prayer. Um, so my question to you is, you know, what do your prayers look like? Are your prayers constantly and always concerned with yourself? You know, are they always inward and self-focused? Or um, are you praying for the discernment to share the gospel? Um, <clears throat> you know, Lord, open up an opportunity today for me to share the word of God. And then he also says this. He says, be watchful in it with thanksgiving. You know, that word watchful... Um, the Greek word is Gregorio, and it's where we get the word Gregory from. And Gregory means, uh, gr- the, the Greek word there, it means to be watchful or diligent. Um, so prayers aren't just about petitions, but they're about vigilance and a time to thank God for all he's done. He says, be watchful with thanksgiving. I want to admonish you right now that in your weekly, your daily prayers through the week, set aside one day just for thanksgiving. Set aside one day during the week where you ask for nothing, where you just thank God for all that he's done for you. Do that. I, I guarantee you the, the, you'll, you'll, feel, you'll, you'll feel a power that you've never felt before. I promise you. There is, there, is a, there is a power in thanksgiving that most of us kind of miss out on. So he says, be watchful in prayer with thanksgiving. And this leads us to the content of our prayers. In verse 3, he says, At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Why does Paul ask for an open door? Why do we need an open door for the word of God? Um. Can't we just, uh, you know, doesn't the Great Commission just kind of give us permission to uh, walk up to total strangers on the street like, like, like I was in my late teens and early 20s and just kind of blast people with the gospel, you know, or a, a bullhorn on the street corner um, or, you know, knocking on doors to total strangers? Why do we need an open door to share the gospel? Why do we need an open door to tell others about the word of God? Well, you know, any good farmer knows that for something to grow, you have to prepare the soil. Right? You have to prepare soil for something to grow. I used to live in the high desert in North L.A. County, and it was so dry that the ground was, was, it was so hard and it was parched and the ground would just crack. You know, you, you, could, you, could, you could sprinkle and, and pour water all over it and the water would just sit on top of the ground. 
So if you've, so if you've been in the Midwest your whole life, you might not know anything about that. But, but in certain parts of California, it was so dry, the water would just sit on the ground. And you've got to till and turn over the soil to get the water down deep into it, to even prepare it to plant seed. You had to till it. You had to open up the ground. This is what I'm about to read is uh, from a sermon by a missionary named Del Tar, who served 14 years in West Africa with a mission agency. And he tells a story that points out the price that some people pay to sow the seed of the gospel. He says, I was always perplexed by Psalm 126 until I went to the Sahel, the vast stretch of savanna, more than 4,000 miles wide under the Sahara, um, just under the Sahara Desert. In the Sahel, all the moisture comes in a four-month period, May, June, July, and August. After that, not a drop of rain falls for eight months. The ground cracks from dryness, and so do your hands and your feet. The winds of the Sahara pick up the dust and throw it thousands of feet into the air. It then comes slowly drifting across West Africa as a fine grit. It gets inside your mouth. It gets inside your watch and stops it. The year's food, of course, must all be grown in these four months. People grow sorghum or milo in these small fields, which is a type of grain. October, November, these are beautiful months. The granaries are full The harvest has come. People sing and dance. They eat two meals a day. The sorghum is ground between two stones. The sorghum is ground between two stones to make flour and then a mush with the consistency of yesterday's cream of wheat. The sticky mush is eaten hot and they roll it into little balls between their fingers and they drop it into sauce and then pop it into their mouths. The meal lies heavy on their stomach so they can sleep at night. Then December comes, and the granaries start to recede. Many families stop eating the morning meal. And certainly by January, not one family in 50 is still eating two meals a day. By February, the evening meal diminishes. The meal shrinks even more during March, and the children succumb to sickness. You don't stay well on half a meal a day. In April, it's the month that haunts my memory, he says. In it, you hear the babies crying in the twilight. Most of the days are passed with only an evening cup of gruel. Then, inevitably, it happens. A six- or seven-year-old boy comes running to his father one day with sudden excitement. Daddy, daddy, we've got grain, he shouts. Son, you know we haven't had grain for weeks. Yes, we have, the boy insists. Out in the hut where we keep the goats, there's a leather sack hanging up on the wall. I reached up and put my hand down in there. Daddy, there's grain in there. Give it to mommy so she can make flour and tonight our tummies can sleep. The father stands motionless. Son, we can't do that, he softly explains. That's next year's seed grain. It's the only thing between us and starvation. We're waiting for the rains, and then we must use it. 
The rains finally arrive in May. And when they do, the young boy watches as his father takes the sack from the wall and does the most unreasonable thing imaginable. Instead of feeding his desperately weakened family, he goes to the field and with tears streaming down his face, he takes the precious seed and throws it all away. He scatters it in the dirt. Why? Because he believes in the harvest. Sometimes we don't share the gospel because we don't really believe in the harvest. Often that's why we don't share. How many of our prayers are concerned with the harvest? How many of your prayers ask God to open up opportunities to share the gospel or to see the lost come to know Christ? You know, we think, oh, that's, that's something other people do. I'm not called to do that. But in reality, we're all called to do that. God is telling us to pray for the harvest. That's what it means when we pray, like Paul says, for the growth and an open door for the word of God. You know, some denominations are really big on evangelism, but they're low on theology. And in the Reformed tradition, we can be really high on theology and sometimes low on evangelism, which, which doesn't make sense because, you know, we believe, um, you know, we, we, we should be the biggest ones on evangelism because we don't believe people can resist a sovereign God if he chooses to save someone. But what we need is apologetic sensitivity. And I'm going to explain what that means in a minute. This is why Paul says in verse 4, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So what's apologetic sensitivity, you're asking? Apologetic sensitivity is an approach to evangelism that takes into account that what we're saying, that God sent his son from heaven and took on a human body and lived a perfect life of obedience to the law of God and took on the sins of the world on himself and went to the cross to die the death that all sinners deserved and then rose from the dead showing his victory over death, hell, and the grave. What we're saying when we say that to the world is pretty crazy. It sounds nuts, you know? And so apologetic sensitivity takes into account the fact that for those people who who have never, never heard the message or don't believe the message, it requires some wisdom in sharing that message. Um, if you look in the book of Acts, Paul talks differently to Jews than he does to Gentiles, right? The Jews know the scriptures, the Greeks don't. If you read the book of Acts, you'll recognize what Paul does. There is no cookie-cutter approach to evangelism. There's not this one rock'em, sock'em winning formula. If you say these five words to every single person you run into, boom, you've done your job. That's just not how it works. Being led by the Holy Spirit and having sensitivity recognizes that different situations call for different means. Now, the gospel never changes and the message never changes, but how we communicate that message will change from person to person. Paul shares 
scripture with the Jews because they know the Bible. The Greeks, he doesn't even quote scripture. He proclaims the truth, but he doesn't quote scripture because the Greeks are ignorant. You know, God doesn't call us to grow the church. So as we're talking about all these things that we want to do about evangelism, it's important for us to know God does not call us to grow the church. Only the Holy Spirit does that. What God calls us to do is be faithful sowing seed. God wants us to be faithful sowing seed. He gives the increase. He causes it to grow. He causes it to take root and to, and to grow up and, and flourish. That's God's job. Our job is to be faithful seed sowers. I'm trying to get in our heads this morning that we have a job to do. That it's up to us that God has called us to participate in his plan of redemption for the ages by faithfully sowing seed and proclaiming the word. So one of the best things you can do is develop an apologetic IQ by being able to address tough questions, right? And there's a lot of tough questions. When we think about sharing, you don't have to know everything, but as we grow in our ability to share the gospel, there are certain tough questions we're going to be hit with, you know, did God really command genocide in the Old Testament? Why doesn't the Bible condemn slavery? What about the age of the earth? Why would a good God allow suffering? These are all questions that are like a cinder block wall. In California, all the, all the houses, I was amazed when I moved here that all of the backyards are open. You know, there is no real backyard. It's just grass shared with your, with your neighbor. In California, everyone's house in the backyard has a six or seven foot block wall, you know, uh, surrounding their backyard. I don't know if people are suspicious. I don't know what it is. Um, but uh, how in the world did I get on cinder block walls? I'm not really sure. Um, <laughs> oh, those tough questions. Right? Those really tough issues from the Bible are like cinder block walls, you know? And, and God is calling us to help people scale those walls, to climb over those walls through the sharing of the gospel, through being sensitive in our witness to others and addressing people and addressing those issues. And I just want to say to you, just as an aside, at the seminary, we have to write papers dealing with all of these hard topics and I've got a bunch of them. So if you, if you have an issue you want some help on, you know, your neighbor or your coworker or someone in class is talking to you about some really tough issue that makes God look like a moral monster, let me know and I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you a, an article on it, something that'll help you. So we want to be equipped. The point is, here's the point. It takes more than hit and run evangelism. You know, the kind I talked about in my early 20s, that I was talking about, I used to do in my early 20s. It takes more than that kind of evangelism to share the gospel with people nowadays, right? 50 years ago, you didn't have to do that because everybody, you know, our culture was really Christianized. Everybody went to church. You could walk up to a drunk on Sunday morning and go, now, why aren't you in church? And he would probably go, yeah, I know. And if you walk up to someone nowadays on Sunday and say, why aren't you in church? You might get punched in the lip. Because <laughs> that's just how our culture has changed. And so it requires us to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be filled with prayer, and to have a sensitivity about talking to people. 
And then he says in verse 5, here's what else we have to do. We have to walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making, best, making the best use of the time, and let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Um, <clears throat> remember in chapter 1, verse 9, Paul prays that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will, God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? So as to walk, he says in the very next verse, chapter, Colossians 1 and 10, so that you would walk in a worthy manner. What Paul is saying is the way we live our lives in the sight of outsiders, and by that we mean people who don't love Christ, people who don't believe the gospel, people who don't care about what we're talking about, the way we live our lives in front of other people is paramount. That's what Paul's getting at. To walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Ephesians 5 says, pay close attention to how you walk, not as fools, but as wise people. Evangelism is not just a word enterprise. It is a word and deed enterprise. Sharing the gospel, proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ is both word and deed. From Paul's point of view, the way we live before the world is just as important as what we say. And it's one of the reasons why Christians have a huge credibility gap in our culture today. Right? All of these scandals in the church, you know, and not just with Christians, but with pastors. You know, nowadays, if you tell someone you're a pastor, they just go, mm hmm. Yeah, I see. You know, here in the Midwest, it's a, little, it's, a li- it's a little different. People will go, oh, okay. In California, if you said you were a pastor, you know, people just, they just give you this blank look. Because they've seen so many failures, so many, you know, integrity gaps, all of these scandals. Um, in fact, I don't even tell people I'm a pastor. I say, I'm a Presbyterian minister. That just sounds a little different, you know. And they go, oh, okay. You know, <laughs> it just works for me better. But... <clears throat> But this is what Paul is saying. He's saying that the way we live is as, as just as important as, as what we say. In his book, Cities of God, the real story of how Christianity became an urban movement and conquered Rome, Rodney Stark says this. He says, first, most conversions are not produced by professional missionaries conveying a new message, but rank-and-file members who share their faith with their friends and relatives. Second, conversions produced by these friends and relatives are often produced by a lifestyle that demonstrates the vitality and power of one's faith. That's a powerful statement. It it, it means that people who come to Christ, people who are saved, people who come to know the Lord... It often happens through your day-to-day relationships with your friends, your coworkers, your families, uh, uh, people you go to school with, by them listening and watching the way you live. That's huge. Why do people join false religions? Because they have a soup kitchen, a recovery program, a shelter. They are able to sufficiently demonstrate their love for people. And it's no surprise because... God has wired human beings this way. If you, if you don't believe I love you, 
uh, there's a lack of trust when you listen to what I have to say and vice versa, right? So if I say something that's uh, from God's word that's hard to hear, if I've sufficiently demonstrated my love for you, um, you're likely to accept it because you know it comes from a place of sincerity. And, And that's what other people do when you talk about God. They authenticate your message by the way you act towards others and them. If you act gracious and loving, then the message is authenticated. The message is true. If, if, if you're a, a, you know, rude and angry and bitter and hard to be around, they don't care about the message. Now, God can use the message in spite of your poor example, but that's not the way it's supposed to work. What we say ought to be followed by the way we act and the way we live. Grace and truth go together. Truth and grace. If it's all grace with no truth, you leave people in their sins. If it's all truth with no grace, you leave people knowing that they're sinners, but so scorched by offense that they they can't do anything with it. It takes both of those two things together for us to speak and act and live with grace and truth together. And then finally, we've gone over a little bit, but finally in verse six, he says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Uh, 1 Peter 3.15 says, In your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason of the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Here's why your words need to be seasoned with salt, which is the way Paul puts it. Why we need to do it with gentleness and respect. Do you want to know why? Do you want to know why? When you share the gospel, you have to be sensitive and gentle. Do you want to know why? Because we're destroying people's worldview. Any worldview that is not a biblical worldview, the gospel and the word of God and the truth of God is, you know, it's like anti-aircraft fire. You know? And we're shooting down other people's worldviews. And if you're a jerk about it, they're not coming to you. They're ditching, you know, in Lake Hindu or something. They're not landing on your airstrip. They're going somewhere else. And that's why our words have to be filled with, seasoned with salt, filled with gentleness and respect. God uses means. Is it all up to us? No, if God wants to save someone, he's going to save someone. But God calls us to participate in his plan of redemption. And there are things that he calls us to do to make that possible. Let's pray.